Hey, um, grateful you're here at church. I'm glad to be back with you. Um, we've lost some of our time of service, so I'm just going to go ahead and dive into the, the text. If you would, would you gather um, with me just in prayer um, over God's word and help us to focus our hearts and minds on what the Lord has for us today? Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise because you're sovereign over all the nations. Your word says that all the rulers of the earth are water in your hand and you move them whichever way you are pleased to. And so, Father, um, we should not be surprised by war and tribulation and famine and rumors of war because we know that the Bible um, indicts this world as fallen and um, in need of redemption. And so, God, we come uh, crying out for gospel redemption to begin in our lives first and to extend to the ends of the earth. Father, this is your text. This is your word. It's incredibly powerful, meaningful. And God, it's not by accident that each of us have gathered here today to hear your word. And so despite all distractions and baggage we could bring in here, Holy Spirit, would you come and make this clear in ways that no man can. God, we come dependent, asking you to be Lord and teacher and master here. Come and make disciples out of us and send us wherever you are pleased to. We pray that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. If you've got a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 11. Our habit has been to go verse by verse, book by book, um, through the scriptures. And I'm grateful for Lee and for Jacob who filled in in the previous weeks. Uh, last week, um, I had the opportunity to speak at a conference in St. Louis, and so I wasn't able to be with you. Um, and so I want to pick up exactly where that left off. If you remember, chapter 10 was sort of a road trip of sorts where they're coming from where Jesus' primary ministry dominated in the north and he comes south to where Jerusalem is on this figurative uh, road trip uh, that won't ever end. And so the disciples are kind of calling shotgun on who gets to be greatest and to the left or the right of Jesus. And Jesus is... Uh, teaching them about the greatest among us serve. And oddly enough, that greatness and that service does not mean um, telling a blind man who is yelling at Jesus and calling upon Jesus to shut up. And so um, they kind of learned the hard way that Jesus is inviting uh, Bartimaeus to name him as a son of David. And that was handled um, last week. And so it's almost like you come to the end of chapter 10 and you're really happy that the road trip with these knuckleheads is over and Jesus is now entering into what we call Passion Week. And so if you've been asking for 10 chapters, are we there yet? It's like, we're there, all right? And so we get to chapter 11, which begins as what is traditionally called the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. So if you've ever been to a store that sells Christmas stuff in July... This is Palm Sunday in March, all right? And so um, we come to the, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had more ministry not detailed in the Gospel of Mark. In the book of John, we learn more about his ministry um, there. But I want to give you kind of a, a, a taste or a sampling of how pivotal this week is um, to the New Testament writers, especially the Gospel writers. This Passion Week takes up nearly 
half of the Gospel of John. Nearly half. Of course, it's very dominated by teaching, so just by sheer volume that happens that way. Two-fifths of Matthew is dedicated to this week. Three-fifths of Mark is dedicated to this week. A third of the Gospel of Luke is dedicated to this week. Like the Gospel writers give the last week of Jesus' life on earth the full treatment. And I would say just by that volume that they want you, among all other things that we could debate about and have conjecture about, they want us zooming in on what happens this week with the cross and the resurrection. It gets the absolute full treatment. Let, let, me, let me put it like this. Of Jesus' first 30 years on the earth, in the Gospels we get four chapters. After that, his three and a half years of public ministry in the Gospels, we get a total of 85 chapters in the four Gospels. Of those 85 chapters, 29 of them focus on this week. Do you, do you get it? Are, are you, because like we're in chapter 10, this thing's going to go to chapter 16 in Mark. Do you get the weight and the gravity that Jesus has for you and how all of human history is, is literally transformed by this week? And they give it a, for us, maybe a disproportionate amount of treatment. We might come to this week and say, you know, I wish I knew more about what Jesus did as a teenager so I could discipline my kids better, right? Like you wish you... He gave more, but, but God's going to say, listen, if you don't get this week like in focus, you're, you're going to miss everything that else that he taught, everything else that he lived, and you're going to miss the rest of the point of Scripture. Okay, and so let, let's read this passage, and I'm going to read it like a Gentile, if you would. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. doesn't say which two. Now I'm going to guess who it is. And they said to him, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they said, and they told them what Jesus said to them. And they let them go. What is this story about? Did Jesus recruit two of his disciples to go billy the kid a goat or a donkey? Like, is he telling them to go steal a donkey, right? Just tell them the password. The Lord needs it. It's like, if that only worked in other ways, Isaac, the Lord needs me to borrow your truck, right? I guess if you're in a prosperity church, that actually happens. Um, like, what is going on in this passage? Which two disciples is it? It doesn't say, but I'm going to guess it's Judas, good at stealing, and Levite tax collector, also good at stealing. Right? And they're just going to roll them in there. And it says, go to town. Could you imagine being the two disciples going, what are we doing? Like, we are going to jail. Like, they're walking up and it says, 
all right, so we're going to go to town, and there's going to be a colt. No one's ever ridden on it. And why the mess does Jesus, do you know you've got to brink a donkey before it becomes useful? Is he going to lane frost this thing all the way to the temple? Y'all don't know who Lane Frost is, do you? He's going PRCA right all the way. Like, is Jesus bull riding this donkey to the temple? Like, why would you want an, an untrained, never been sat on donkey? That makes no sense. If I'm the disciples and I'm going there and it's like I'm going to jail for like larceny of a donkey, right? And they're going to get there and say... The person, it's like the Lord needs it, man. And the person's like, all right, cool. And then they're going to walk away. I saw this video on YouTube. It's two guys that tested a theory that if you carry a ladder in anywhere, they'll just let you in. So they just have, they go to a museum and two of them are carrying a ladder and they're like, oh, these guys, you know? Or they go to like a movie theater and they just let them in. Is this like some sort of like something going on that we don't know? It's it's like, it's it's a strange account. It's like Jesus knows exactly where this donkey is. He sends them there. And so, and the other thing too, it's like, like we just got this previous passage in chapter 10 that Jesus is the son of David. He's the king. So shouldn't he be rolling up like the book of Revelation on a white horse, right? Like, a, like King Arthur rolling in this dude. Instead, what is he driving in a town? A Prius? Right? Is he in a pinto pulling up? Like, Jesus, you could do so much better. Right? Janet talked about borrowing things. It's like Jesus doesn't even have a donkey. He's borrowing a donkey. Okay, so, and then they told him, Jesus said, and they let him, they let him go, all right? Small miracle. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and then they threw their cloaks on it, which I guess are like, like superheroes wear, and he sat on it. So they take off their, their Jedi robe. I don't, I don't wear a cloak. They took their cloaks off, and they put it and made a makeshift saddle. It appears here, and he sat on it, and then they spread their cloaks on the road, because that's real functional. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting. Which, by the way, if you've ever been around an untrained donkey and somebody gets onto it, just shout right at its face. You know what I mean? I need somebody to teach this as a physical illustration. It's probably a Roderick. Can y'all get on a donkey that's never been ridden? Just shout at it and see what happens. Video it. We'll make millions. And those who went before in those fall were shouting, Hosanna, which is not a word I regularly know. It literally means, come save now, Ho-Ashana. It comes from this thing. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And then when he had looked around everything, it was already late, so he went back to Bethany with the twelve. That's the most anticlimactic ending of all times. Right? He just goes in and is like, all right, next time. And like leaves. <clears throat> and they sing all the songs. And you can read in, in Luke, they'll say like, peace on earth. I mean, there's all of this, like, if you read in Matthew and Luke's account, there's different people shouting different things. So when you read this account, tell me, is it not curious? Like, doesn't it kind of, like, pique your interest just a little bit about what is going on here? By the way, Jesus, in all the rest of his ministry, is bipedal. He's walking everywhere. Now, this is the first time that we see him on a, a animal. 
It's not like he, he hasn't done this before. By the way, how many times throughout the first 10 chapters of Mark has someone started to call him king, get a ruckus going, and Jesus be like, hey, you calm all that down. What we learn in the other gospel accounts is that they get so rowdy that the Pharisees say, Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, as we have heard before, if they don't sing, if they don't cry, the stones will cry out. Jesus is not silencing people confessing who he is, but he's, he's, he's like, yeah, yeah, let's do this thing. And isn't that unbelievably dangerous? I mean, does this not, I mean, and just, it, it begs some questions. So I'm going to go to a, a, a I'm going to, I want to go and, and maybe start in the left side of the book. I want to look at some passages that will give some context for this and, and then bring it, and I want to read the passage again and see if some of it doesn't stick out to us. Okay? So it, they're going to bring this thing up. Um, my kids are, are unbelievably the worst people to have watch a movie before you. The worst. Because if they see the movie first... Like, every time, they're going to be like, oh, Dad, you know what happens? Like, they can't control themselves. Like, I'm going to try to be that way because I am that way. Like, if a cool scene comes up, they'll be like, hey, watch this, watch this, watch this. Okay, good. You just ruined it. Right? You just you screwed it up. Okay? So, I'm going to try not to ruin it. But I think that if you've been in the Bible a minute, this, is, this, might, get some, this might be fascinating. So, first thing, thing is in Genesis chapter 49, um, the Patriarch Jacob um, blesses his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. These blessings come on there. And he, they're pretty standard. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't say standard. He's like, Reuben, you like, slept with one of my wives, so you're not getting blessed. All right, so Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. Anybody got kids like that? And you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. Basic Old Testament stuff. So then they go to the next one. Levi, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. And, and he just kind of details each of the kids. And he, he has blessings with it. Go to the next slide. Then, Judah. It comes to the, the, the tribe, the son Judah. Remember, it's hard sometimes for us to remember that these are not yet tribes. These are individuals. And then they become a people. And the name of their father becomes a, a detail for all of the people that would come after them. Judah, this is real curious. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, which is, by the way, Jesus throughout Scripture will be called the lion of the tribe of Judah for this reason. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, by the way, a scepter is an instrument for ruling. Shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Like the, the people's obedience of the people's, all the people groups of the earth. Are, are in some way going to come to this Judah and render tribute to, to him as their, their obedience as their tribute. I mean, it's, it's, it's odd. 
binding, now you think that's odd, listen to this, binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Jesus is going to teach throughout the scriptures that I am the vine, you are the branches. So you have a whole picture going on there. But it's also that somehow this vine, who is also a lion, who is also Judah, is going to be connected to a donkey's colt, of all things. And he, uh, to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. That talks about the second coming of Christ that will come in wrath. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Then it goes right on, like verse 13, like that's it, that's Judah, that's, that's some sort of prophecy thing. Babylon shall dwell at the shore of the sea and shall become a haven for ships. And it just kind of goes on to the next tribe and the next tribe and the next tribe. Fascinating. Go to the next slide. Then you get further in the Old Testament. You come to 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33. And it's about the rightful successor. What, what's fascinating is that David never, in the scriptures, do we hear him described as riding a war horse. What he rides and what he has is a donkey. And on his donkey, no one is allowed to ride except him. It's like having a reserved parking spot at work because you're the boss. The king's donkey was ridden by no one except the king. When there's controversy about which son of David is going to replace him on the throne and be, listen to this, the rightful successor, David goes and gets his donkey and puts Solomon on it. And the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule or burden a beast or donkey. It, it, the words here are interchangeable for the same animal. And bring him down to Gihon. It's kind of a throwaway verse that if you did this in your Bible reading time, it's not like, oh my God, Jesus, I'm so grateful for the donkey verse about Solomon. <sighs> Just got me ready, ready to face the day. But the rightful successor is riding on a donkey that only the king can ride on. Go to the next one. Donkeys of kings were to be unridden. Deuteronomy 21, Numbers 19, 1 Samuel chapter 6. There's these passages throughout the, the text that talk about um, the exclusivity of these animals. Go to the next one. Another thing, David, who is king, Solomon, who is king, and all the prophets ride humbly on don donkeys is interesting go to the next one um one thing about even them what ends up happening and some say that the reason david and solomon did this was the uh in the torah it was prescribed that kings shouldn't multiply horses and take everybody's horses so they kind of took this as we we shouldn't be like the horse masters of the whole earth and so we should stay humble a lot of the bad kings that came later did exactly what the law told them not to do fascinating insight this Zechariah 9 9 is mentioned in the gospel of Matthew describing the triumphal entry in the gospel account this is quoted in the gospel of Matthew talking about the same passage we're dealing with in Mark Zechariah 9 9 this is unbelievable rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion that's like another expression for God's people the church the gathering shout aloud O daughter of Jerusalem behold your king is coming to you Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt. The fowl of a donkey. 
So inside of the Hebrew mindset was this expectation that the Messiah who came would be a king, but that he would come to Jerusalem on a donkey. Go to the next one. 2 Kings chapter 9. Now this is an interesting passage. The prophet Elisha comes and calls during the time of Ahab another prophet to go to, king, or to Jehu, who is a commander. If you think about who is the most wicked king in all of the Old Testament, hands down, it is Ahab and his right-hand woman, Jezebel. They are considered like next-level wicked to the level that uh, we, we would just balk at, okay? And so the worst king, and the prophet is told by God to go to a particular commander, and when he gets to that commander, it says, anoint him with oil and set him apart as the king, and then, like, leave, which is, is awesome. It's like, create a, roll a social grenade in there that's going to cause all kinds of problems and just walk away, right? Um, and so that's what he does. He goes up to Jehu. Jehu's with all the other commanders and the boys. King Ahab is somewhere else. The prophet goes in and anoints Jehu as the next rightful king in this passage has. And, and so Jehu is asked by the people around him, it's like, what did that guy just say to you? What did he just do? And he said, thus, and so he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment, the same word here, Hebrew, took his cloak and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. It is the Old Testament pulling off of your garment to lay it down so that the king can walk over it. Go to the next one. As garments come under the future king. This is, uh, a, it, Ezekiel in general is really difficult for me because I feel like he's the nerdy weird kid, right, in school that just has some sort of imagination I can't keep up with. Okay, and so like you read the prophet Ezekiel and it's like, I feel like there's a Star Wars battle happening here with some Lord of the Rings mixed in and it's just kind of complicated and they're describing things and it's, it's, it's a difficult prophet. Inside the prophecy of Ezekiel though is this concept of the glory of God departing the temple. The Hebrew word for that is Ichabod, which is by the way, don't name your kid Ichabod. It means the glory of God has departed. Just here to help you guys. Don't get a tattoo of it. No bumper stickers, Ichabod, it's not cool, okay? So glory of God has departed. Basically, the prophet is saying, this temple thing where the glory of God was meant to dwell, the glory of God is departing it. Like, it served its time. Your sins and wickedness have come before the Lord. The Lord is doing away with the shadow, and he's bringing the full light. And so he sees this vision. And this vision is that the glory of God leaves the temple, and like the Holy of Holies here, and goes out. And then it comes down, the glory of God comes back to the temple. So it, it, it does the oop-de-oop, all right? But it comes back to the temple from the east side. Okay, so then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. Exact same language John used of Jesus in Revelation. And the vision I saw 
was just like the vision that I'd seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I'd seen in the Chabar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. East. All right. The glory of God coming down from the east. And how's the glory leave the temple? And yet, somehow the glory of God in flesh enters the temple? Hmm. Go to the next one. I'm going to try not to spoil it. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of my people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings nor their whoring by the dead bodies of their kings at the high places. By setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only a wall between me and them. They have defiled my holy name and abominations and they have committed and so I've consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away the whoring and the dead bodies of their kings far from me for I will dwell in their midst forever. This has the idea of that somehow God is tabernacling and coming among us forever in a way that the temple just was like it was an appetizer. Okay, go, go to the next one. Uh, I don't even know what to do with this verse, and I got to Jacob late this week asking about it. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. Same transgression and issues that Ezekiel was writing about. To put an end to sin. Like an end? Like no more bulls and goats? And to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. To seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. You could say that's a building. You could say it's a person. Just a space. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming out of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And so what are they talking about this week? And a lot of people that get into eschatology will say, where you land on this, and, and especially what follows has to do with pre-trib, post-trib, and where some people make determinations about their end times theology. What is shared, though, by most theologians is that this is dealing with a specific number of years, 70 times 7 or 70 times 7 minus 7, and go to the next one. I thank you. This is Psalm 118. This is called a Hillel Psalm, and it was saying as a victory psalm. So people would oftentimes cut branches and celebrate a conquering so if your king and your boys came back from war and they, they rolled back in and they would celebrate that by singing a psalm like Psalm 118. And it's unbelievable. I, uh, Austin read it earlier. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. That's literally what Jesus' name means. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Anybody heard that before? Right? We've got to get Sunday school going again. Nobody's heard that, right? That's right. Um, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, who's heard that verse before? All right. That's, uh, my man. All right. And a lot of times, hey, I see that hand. A lot of times when we sing that, this is the day. Austin, we're going to finish the service. with. I'm just joking. You're not ready. Um. 
This is the day that the Lord's made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. We kind of say that's like every day. Or sometimes we say this is the Lord's day. It's Sunday. The Jews understood this to be the day when Daniel 9 is filled. This is meant for the Jews to be the day that the Messiah would come and make things right. This is the day that the Lord has made. So they understood it that way. Save us, in verse 25, is the word Hosanna. We, tr- we translate it some places we don't others. Hosanna. We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows after me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Bind the feastal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Like, bind the sacrifice? There's so many things going on here. We've got cornerstone rejected. we got, this is a praise psalm, and then there's a sacrifice involved, and there's praying for salvation. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. This is what they're singing. Go to, go to the next one. This is unbelievable. In the Old Testament, the 10th of Nisan, the day that Jesus, we learn from John, the day that he comes in, many scholars believe is clearly the 10th of Nisan because of where this falls in the Passover week. The 10th of Nisan, if you agree with Daniel 9, is the day he walks in to Jerusalem is the exact amount of years to fulfill Daniel 9. It is also the 10th of Nisan. The 10th of Nisan is pivotal because families on this day selected the lambs that they would sacrifice on Friday. So you, you, got, the, you got the FFA show. You know what I'm saying? You got to bring, bring them out. Tell the whole community of Israel on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel shall slaughter them at twilight. So between the 10th and 14th, you got four days. The lamb is selected and inspected for sacrifice. Notice this. Jesus, from the time that he comes in, is going to have four days to be interrogated and inspected by all of God's people. Furthermore, these are not just any lambs. You can't get these in Ignacio. These are specially raised lambs that came from one town. Do you want to guess where it is? Bethlehem. You can only get these lambs for the sacrificial system from the city of David, from Bethlehem. They were set apart, and they were brought to Jerusalem. Most of the pilgrims, they wouldn't bring their lambs. They would come there, and they would purchase them, which is where you're going to get into the issues with the temple and the tax, and people, like, basically charging Disney prices, uh, you know, for these lambs and stuff. Now, here's the thing that I want to, I want to take this to just one more level, and then I want to go back to the passage. The 10th of Nisan is the day of fulfillment for Daniel chapter 9. Jesus, the very day, walks in there. This is, their calendar and our calendar are not the same. They don't have... August, because August was like a pagan word. 
they have a whole other calendar with a different schedule and things that go on, which makes it incredibly complicated when you try to work out biblical feasts and things. But the 10th of Nisan is roughly early April. It's like April 6th or something like that. Depending on the year, it kind of changes. Passover is the feast, one of the only three, that all of God's people were required to come back to Jerusalem to attend. So you've got people from all over the world coming back to this Passover. Josephus, who is not a Christian, he's a Jewish writer outside the Bible in 40 AD, says that in 40 AD, which is roughly around the same time as this, that the Jews from Bethlehem had 260,000 lambs. 260,000 lambs, one for each family. Now, you ain't got to be a mathematician, Dennis, to get that in there. All right? Roughly, there's reasons why we say that there's 10 because of how the Old Testament puts together if you don't have enough people for one lamb, basically how that gets in there. What is a generous estimate here of 260,000 lambs for 10 people? Two to three million people are in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus comes in. So when we read Mark 9, do you think it's as many people as in this room? Two to three million people. Now, often, this is like Paris. Like, Paris has the city proper and all of the suburbs. People stayed in the suburbs and stuff, and they came in for the feast. I mean, it is ruckus. And where's he coming from? Bethany and Bethphage. Go back to the text. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem... To Bethphage and Bethany, this is like city of unripe figs, city of figs, at the Mount of Olives. There's a picture should come up of the Mount of Olives. Uh, that's the path down, actually Roman road that comes down the Mount of Olives. That's actually uh, country music star Zachary uh, holding my son Deacon. This is what the temple would have looked like if you're on top of the Mount of Olives looking down towards the temple. Go to the next one. That is the Mount of Olives that he would have come down into the city. This is standing in the city, looking that direction. Bethany and Bethphage are not great neighborhoods. They're poor. It's basically Jesus is staying at the Circle 8 or Super 8, right? It's not, he's not in great accommodations, but most of the people are staying. It's about two miles away. It's about a, probably an hour walk or something, depending on how, how you hoof it, but I mean, like, like those others, they're staying with friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. We get that story of where he's staying. And he's coming, what does Ezekiel say, from the east side. He's coming from the east side. The man of olives, he sent two disciples ahead of him and said, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. You know why no one's ever sat on it? Because it's for the king. He's not stealing it. He's practicing eminent domain. He's the sovereign of the universe, and he has rights to everything. No one's ever said, untie and bring it. If anyone says, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back immediately. He knows the way in which people are going to react to what they're doing, and he knows what to say to them to get them to support what he's doing. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door just uh, outside in the street, and they untied it, and some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus said, and they let them go. And it says, it says that the Lord needs it, 
which is fascinating. Because somewhere in history is a guy who said, my donkey is not my own. If the Lord needs it, it's his. And I think that we, we skip over that because I got so much stuff that's mine and is not God's. And we think about our resources as this is what I give to God and this is what I keep instead of all that I have, including my breath, my family, my car, my house. All I have is God's. And this is, this is my life surrendered to him. And the Lord has need of it and he gives it. Some of you use your house so that we can host house churches. And you, you, the Lord has need of it and you give it. You give resources. You give time to get meals with lost people so they can hear the gospel. You give your vacation time up to go to church camps or to go to mission trips. You use a card that God allows you to have to go pick up women for the women's event. Use your talents to build this church and to build the kingdom. The Lord asks and you give to be a part of it. The Lord has need of it. He sends it. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it. The French people, um, having lived in France, have fewer clothes than most Americans. They keep fewer clothes but the clothes that they have are nicer. Americans got 14 pairs of sweatpants. They're sort of roll into Walmart with one and target the other, all right? It's like we have more clothes than most French people, but they're not as nice as French people's clothes. And this is more similar to how French people have. They don't have a lot of clothes. They have basically this cloak Jedi robe poncho that they wear everywhere. If it gets cold at night, you wrapped yourself in your cloak, and it was basically like a sleeping bag. This is one of the reasons why Jesus would teach if, you know, somebody comes to you and says, and they try to take your outer garment, your cloak, let them have your shirt also, right? Like, they take one thing, give them the other. There's like this extreme thing because someone would, that night, wouldn't basically have an electric blanket to keep warm in at night. And Jesus is talking about how unrealistic the greed of people can become in that passage. This cloak was something you would wear every day. You would see people wearing the same thing. Some of you have served in Africa before, and a lot of them dress like we do on Sunday mornings, and they wear a blazer to church, and they wear a blazer on Monday, and they wear a blazer on Tuesday. Now in Africa or in India, they wear their best clothes every single day. And it says that they took what was their best, maybe most pivotal, meaningful garment, and they took it off and they made a saddle for Jesus, and they laid it at his feet, Exactly the same way that the King Jehu would have done before him, before he would replace the evil King Ahab. And they took leafy branches, which had become this, on the Maccabean revolt about 150 years before, a symbol of nationalistic pride. But it was a conquering symbol. It was a wave offering before the lords that they cut from the fields. And those who went before and those that followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They're not mincing words. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is king. Sometimes Jesus says it, and sometimes he just shows it. Every detail 
of this is crafted to say Jesus is king. Say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. This is the conquering song because he comes in to conquer sin, death, and hell. All of these random bits fit because God is sovereign. A God who is not sovereign could not orchestrate this. God is sovereign, and so every bit of these random pieces fits. Listen, I get in this thing sometimes where I don't know whether to teach you or to preach at you, but let me preach one thing to you here. You and I are always going to be tempted to believe that the random things in our lives don't have a purpose. We're going to be tempted to think that this thing that happened to me is too big for God. That's got nothing to do with God. It's got something to do with Ahab's of the world. The glory leaving the temple. I've been through things that you don't know. And God ain't got no purpose for those things. And we, thinking that we're sovereign and all-knowing ourselves, will make an accusation against the sovereignty of God. Do you realize that, have you ever bought a puzzle? And, and it got like a zillion pieces. And when you dump it out on the table, it looks like nothing but chaos and hard work. Right? It's like, what did I just sign up for? A semester of hating myself? Why did we buy a puzzle? Do we not have enough jobs around here? Right? But you dump out, you get, and if you want to be satanic, just switch the box tops in the store. Um, but you get the box, and you dump it out, and it's a pile. It ain't no picture. It's just chaos. And, and a job. Hard labor. Listen. You trust when you dump a box out from a puzzle that every piece fits. Amen? Every piece has its piece it fits next to. It has its place. And when all of the pieces are together, you know it's going to reflect something. Something glorious. It's going to be a picture. It's going to communicate. Church, listen to me. In your life, don't trust a toy maker more than you trust the God of the universe. Don't trust a toy maker who cut the puzzle more than you trust the God of the universe. He is sovereign enough to make every piece fit and just right on time. Just right on the right day and the right time. Christian, have you ever had it you get a glimpse of God's sovereignty where just what you needed came at just the time that you needed it. That you didn't know why you were praying for that thing, but God just kept burdening your heart to pray for that. And then all of a sudden, things start moving and things come about that you, you can't explain otherwise. Have you ever seen God bring a word of encouragement when you're down or a word of rebuke when you needed to get back on the path? Have you seen God be sovereign in your journey yet? Here's the last question, and then we're going to end this. This is called the triumphal entry of Jesus, and I think it lives up to the hype. But the question for each of us here is, has Jesus made a triumphal entry into your heart? Has he come and become Lord of your life? Have you, in, a, in humility, 
accepted Jesus as your king? Have you pledged him your filthy? Have you laid your life down like a cloak? Saying all that is valuable that I have is yours, Jesus, if you'll only be lifted up. Have you seen him conquer on your behalf through the cross, sin, death, and hell? Church, have you ever sang Hosanna? Have you ever sang Hosanna? Because of what he's done for you. If you haven't, I just encourage you with all that I am to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved and to trust him. Can I pray for you? Ronnie, would you come? With heads bowed and maybe eyes closed, maybe just between you and the Lord. Maybe you've never called upon him and trusted him with your sin. And I just want to invite you to do that. To turn from your sin and to turn to him as king and sing Hosanna. God, come save me. God's good for it. If he can hear the blind Bartimaeus, he can hear you. Or maybe you're here as one of my brothers and sisters. And there's just things happening in your life that seem random meaningless and that they don't fit every bit as much as the children of Israel would have looked at a bunch of those passages and had no idea what is God doing maybe would you just confess the Lord is sovereign and trust him all over again Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we thank you for your kingdom being here now and your will being done here now. And so God, come and begin in us. Father, come and show us just maybe even a few pieces that fit together that we might trust your sovereign kingship and that you might rule and reign over our lives. God, build the confidence of my brothers and sisters that you are sovereign and that you look out for them and that you're going to work all things together for their good and your glory. God, if there's one here who has not put their faith in Jesus as their king, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would haunt them and drive them and move them and break them until they cry Hosanna with Maybe tears in their eyes and joy in their hearts. God, um, we thank you for Jesus, the Lamb who was selected on our behalf and who was crucified for our Passover. All worship and praise to his name. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.